Welcome to the Branches podcast. Branches is a community of faith, hope and love in the South Orange County. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about our faith or our community, visit our website at branchesoc.com. So we've been going through the first 10 books, no, first 10 chapters of the book of Acts. So that's what we're going through. But we're doing that at the same time that NBC is showing their um, television series, miniseries, going through the same thing. And so if you look on your chairs and hold it up, you'll see a little card there. And in that card, it has the scriptures for each week. And you're going to need those. Because if you've experienced what we've experienced, the series is great. Um, My seven-year-old daughter is frightened of it, so she doesn't want to watch it. Because they're adding all this stuff that wasn't in the scriptures, but it's you know, different, and she's like, I don't like this, but it's so good, but you also need to look through the scriptures because it's not perfectly accurate, which we're okay with, but you just have to know that. You can't think like, oh, this is NBC's attempt to just go word for word through the Bible. No, it's not their attempt. What they're trying to do is, well, get ratings, but what we're trying to do is use this as an excuse to really look and see the scriptures like we haven't seen them before, and also to know them. Like, for example, uh, I was with my family, and we were watching it, and they had a scene where we talked about it two weeks ago, where Peter is with Jesus, and Jesus says, do you love me? You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Take care of my lambs. And then the third time in the television show, he says, do you love me? And then Peter's response isn't the same as it is in the scripture. Like, in the scriptures, it's more passionate. You'd think they put more passion in the show because they kind of overdo it in the show. There's a little bit of overacting every once in a while. But they don't do it there. And that's where it's like the most important. Because that's where Peter's dealing with all this shame and this guilt. And he's like, oh, I can't believe you asked me a third time. And it says that he was really hurt. And you look, and Peter's like, you know I love you. I'm like, what are you doing? That's not what happened. And then Jesus' response in the television show, he's like, follow me. And I was like, that's not what he said. And I, I said it out loud, and um, my boys are there, and they're like, well, what did he say? I go, well, grab your Bible and look at it. Well, I don't know where to look. I go, well, here's the card. There's the scripture. Look at it. Do that. Like, you get to look through and go, did this really happen? Because it's all right there, ready for you. So that's what we're doing. And what we do here is we look for patterns. So tonight, the scriptures, that's what we're going to be going through, primarily Acts 3 and 4. And what I'm trying to do is get us to look at patterns and compare it to us, because this series is the life of the early church after Easter. And for us, how do we live after Easter? How do we live with what we know? And so that's what we're going to do. So this morning, we're going to talk about um, especially Peter and this early church, but we're going to focus on Peter because it's helpful to focus on one person rather than all of them. What's it like when you're told that you're going to fail and yet what you think is that you're a failure? And what does that look like? How are we supposed to live when that's what we think? Um, If you know me, you know how competitive I am. It's a struggle I have. Most of you have the same struggle. To some degree or another, you don't like to lose. Because if you lose, for some weird reason, we think we're a loser. Or if you fail, like Peter did, then you feel like a failure. Not like a failure. You define yourself as a failure. Uh, Shane... Uh, Shane Mall, who's an elder here at the church, when he was in high school, I was his youth leader, 
And uh, so I took him and one of his best buddies, Bo Schuster, we went down to be in this over-the-line tournament. Now, we went not trying to win because we, you know, we didn't play over the line that much. I mean, I grew up as a kid playing it. It's kind of like a softball game that you play on a beach, and it's like you hit the ball, and we don't need to go through the game. But basically, we didn't grow up playing it. It wasn't like one of those games. But they had this huge tournament with youth from all over Southern California, and they went and they had this huge over-the-line tournament. And there's three people on a team. So we showed up, and we're just playing, and pretty soon we're like, we're the best ones here. Like, there's people from all over, and yet we're killing. I mean, not just beating them. I mean, demolishing them. Like, there's a mercy rule, and we were mercying them. And so everyone's like, oh, look at that team from San Clemente. They're amazing. And it was like, you know, you start kind of feeling pretty good about yourself. We're making it through the bracket. They have a big bracket board. And we had some name. I can't remember what it was. And so pretty much we'd walk by, and people were like, there they go. That's them, the surfers. They're good. And so we make it all the way to the championship game. And, like, this is a team we've destroyed before. And, I, like, I mean, these games weren't even close. So we get to the championship game, and we lose. And it was wrong. Like, we lost. And we just looked at each other, and the other team's celebrating, you know, like, come on. Like, I'm a leader, so I'm like, come on, let's good sportsmanship. Way to go, guys. There was none of that. I wanted it to come out. I wanted to be that guy, but I wasn't that guy. I was like, yeah, good job. Yeah, way to go. I'm, it's a teenager, right? Like, you know, adult. Hey, how you doing? Way to go. No. Hey, good game, man. Good game. Shane, Bo, yeah, let's get out of here. We went right to the car. They're like, they're doing the trophy ceremony, and our car's like pulling away. My little red pickup truck. Off the beach as we're leaving um, on Fiesta Island in San Diego. And we drove home, and nobody talked. Like, we wanted a dog, but we couldn't. Because they were the same way as I was. They were so, we lost. And so we felt like losers. Do you know how many ping pong paddles I've broken in my life? Like so many of them because I'll play and I'm pretty good at it, right? Because you can't feel like a loser. So you got to get good at it so that you don't feel like a loser. And so I'm playing and if I, I'll just get, whoa, boom. And those things are like little shabby wood. Creak. So you have to have like a stack of them. Like it's a problem. But see, I feel comfortable in your presence sharing this. Because I know you got problems too. Because you think the same way. Maybe you don't break ping pong paddles. Maybe you're a better sport than I am. But you define losing as, oh, I'm a loser. Or if I fail, I'm a failure. Oh, I get bad grades. I'm just dumb. Who said so? Because you did bad in a class. And these, these images follow us. Someone says something about you and you believe it. Because they defined you a certain way and you fall into that. Maybe you failed in your job. Maybe you're not as successful as someone else or as successful as you wanted to be. So if you're not successful, then that must mean you're a failure. Or maybe it's in dating. I can't get a date. Or maybe every time you date, you just keep going through dates. Or maybe someone doesn't ask you out. Or maybe, maybe they ask you out, but they're asking me out for these reasons. I know it's not the right reasons. And so you're a failure in dating. Or you've gotten in marriage and you're like, I'm bad at this. Like, I'm not a good wife, I'm not a good husband, or I'm divorced. I failed in this marriage. That means I'm a failure. Or maybe like, one, I've done this three times. Like, that's how you define yourself. This is the problem. This is, when we define sin, we think of it like things like, oh, hey, tax season just passed. I lied on my taxes. That's a sin. I can't tell anybody. That's a sin because I stole. Or maybe it's that um, 
you yelled, you know when you just have that moment where you just lose your mind and you scream at somebody and you know you hurt their feelings and so you know you sinned and yet, and, and we call it sin because you knew it wasn't the right thing to do but you did it anyways. You're like, oh, and you just feel like you failed. So we call those type of things sin. I drink too much, I eat too much, I don't eat, I withhold. I, whatever it is is your sin, do you understand that probably the greatest sin is to not see yourself correctly? Do you realize that calling yourself a failure is a sin? It's a sin because it's not true. Now, you may believe it. You may have been told that. You may have been treated that way as a child. That's usually when this happens. It's like we hurt each other, we hurt each other, and then we start believing these lies. And so you believe that thing about you. That is a sin. Peter is stuck in his sin to the point that Jesus has to come back and restore him and he will not give up. Peter is running from Jesus. He's seen Jesus rise from the dead. He's in his presence and yet in his presence he still walks away from him because the shame and the guilt are so heavy that he can't see himself correctly. And the reality is so, much, so many of us are trapped in that sin. That's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about the sin of defining yourself incorrectly. Because if you define yourself as a failure or a loser, then you do not know who you are because you were created as a child of God. And those are not failures. You might have failed. You might have lost in a different area. But that's much different than being a failure or being a loser. And the problem is, is too many of us are trapped and bound by that. And we think the gospel doesn't answer that. And yet that's exactly what Jesus came back to do. To set us free from sin. And there is no greater sin. There is no greater sin than an incorrect view of who you are. And we've got to break that lie and see ourselves for who we really are. And we're going to look in the scriptures and watch as God defines this. So go to Acts chapter 3, please. And what we see here in Acts... Um, is, and I want to give you some background because, like I said, many of you not, might not have been going with us yet through Acts. really want to encourage you to do it because I want you to go with it, through, through it with us. Um, but what they've done is, is they've, um, Peter's been restored. He's up in, um, in Galilee with the rest of the disciples. They're, they're running out of fear of safety. But Jesus appears to them. Not only did he appear to them in Jerusalem, then he spends time with them in Galilee and he spends time with them 40 days, and he says, you need to go back to Jerusalem. And this is unique, and this is why I love us going through the video series also, because the way that NBC depicted it, they make it very clear that when he calls them to come back to Jerusalem, remember, that's the place where they killed Jesus. That's the place they had to escape from or they were going to be killed. And Jesus calls them back to the dangerous place. But they come. They come because they've seen the risen Lord and they trust him. So they come back to Jerusalem. And when they're in Jerusalem, um, last week, there's the release of the Holy Spirit. And where God says, you need to go back there because the Holy Spirit's going to meet you there. And the disciples are standing around. They're like, what are we waiting for? I don't know. He said we needed to wait. And the Spirit's going to show up. What's it going to be like? I have no idea. We just got to wait. And so they wait and they wait and the Spirit of God fills them. And that's where we're at right now. Because there's this, this excitement where they know that God is near and moving. And so they get out and they, they go into town. Like, what do we do? And Peter says, we're going to the temple. Yeah, let's go. They don't know what they're going to do. They're just going to go pray and be there and see what God does. And so they walk in. 
And when they come, it's like they see that guy. There's a, a paraplegic. He's, on a, uh, he's sitting down and he's begging. So for modern terms, it's the guy that always appears at a certain off-ramp. I don't know what off-ramp you always get. It's either a woman or a man, and they're sitting there with a sign. You know, it says, give me money, I need help, or hey, I'm just shooting you straight, I want beer, whatever they say. But you see that person, right? There's certain people you know, and you know the ones that are legitimate, you know the ones, I'm pretty sure that one's not. This man at the temple is legitimate. He cannot walk. The only way he can survive, there's no, there's no I hope, there's no family assistance ministries, there's no groups other than the, other than the generosity of the people around them that can provide for him. And so this is his spot. Nobody else takes his spot. Everybody knows this is his spot. Somebody else comes. He's like, yo, you know, this is my intersection. It's my off-ramp. You got to go somewhere else. So they come into the temple, and they see that man. They don't say his name. And the way it works is, is, is you call their name. Hey, you, look at me. They look up. You're like, hey, here's some money. That's for me. Have a good day. And you're in church. So you feel good about it, right? Because you did it at church. They so feel like you got some, like, good karma or something. And then you walk on. So Peter and John walk in, and they go, hey. And he looks up. Typical system, right? And he's looking for money. And then Peter says this. Hey, I don't have any money. Now, if you're the guy on the ground, you're thinking, why are you calling my name? Why are you, why are you getting my attention? You know how this works. Hey, look at me. I look up. You give me some money. Boom, you keep going. I make you feel good. Why? If you don't have money, why are we doing this? And then Peter does this. I don't know why. I don't know if the Spirit of God put it on his heart. But he says, I don't have money. Silver and gold I don't have. But what I do have, I give you. And he reaches down to grab his hand, and he goes to pull him up. Have you ever walked to someone that's a quadriplegic and prayed over them and then said, okay, now let's get up? I've done it. It's very awkward. Because they're like, what are you doing? Like, I don't walk. I don't move. Like, don't do this. We don't see how he feels, but we know that this paraplegic gets up. And Peter picks him up and he's standing. And imagine the shock going through his body. Like, what is going on? And it says he started singing and dancing and like praising the Lord. Wouldn't you do that? But I, we know they left it out. There's got to be this period of like, is this really happening? Wait, is this one of those dreams that I'm really deep in and it didn't really happen? Wait, is someone behind me holding me up? Like, he's got to be in complete and utter shock. And everybody around freaks out. And so instead of looking at the man being healed and glorifying God, what do they do? They're like, look at those two. And they start thinking that Peter and John are something special, that they're unbelievable like angels on earth or something. Now remember, this is the same Peter who lived in complete shame and guilt and defined himself as a failure. Wouldn't even look Jesus in the eye. And so they're surrounding him, and this is Peter's response. This is, uh, we're in chapter 3, verse 12. Why are you so amazed, my fellow Israelites? Why are you staring at my friend and me as though we did this miracle through our own power or made this fellow walk by our own holiness? And then he says this, we didn't do this. God did. Like, he's in shock. Like, you guys really think we did this? Because he knows where this power comes from. He knows who he is now, but he also knows that this work that he's done is not of him. It's of God. And yet everyone there is just amazed. And so he then goes on to talk about Christ. He's like, 
Don't you understand where this came from? The Christ, the Messiah that was here, we told you about him. Yeah, sure, we went and hid because we were freaking out and we were afraid. So we we're kind of in the back. And some of you accused us of being with him and I denied it. And he's going through this whole thing of who Christ is. And he says this. He says, so that's how this miracle happened. Now, a miracle, we've talked about this plenty of times, so I don't want to go too deep into it. But a miracle, that word means a sign. So if everybody can look back in the back corner where that sign says branches. See that sign back there? That's an arrow, right? That's a sign. I've noticed that when you guys come, nobody really hangs out at the sign, right? People don't walk in and go, whoa, look at the sign. Hey, look at that. Like nobody hangs out there. That's what it is. It's meant to point you somewhere else. It's meant to point you. So if you have kids in nursery or preschool or elementary or junior high or high school, it tells you where they're going to be and at what times. It points you to something else. A miracle is a sign. That's what it literally means. It means a sign, a sign that's made. That's what miracle means. And so this miracle, so that's how this miracle happened, this sign, it's meant to point you somewhere else. And he's like, why are you looking at us? Don't even look at him. This is supposed to point you somewhere else, the glory of God. So that's how this miracle happened. Verse 16, we have faith in the name of Jesus, and he is the power that made this man strong, this man who is known to all of you. And he goes on and on to describe this, and they all start believing, and there's this commotion. And because there's a commotion, the religious leaders get furious, and the, the religious military, it still blows my mind that the church had its own army. But this army comes in, and they grab him. They grab Peter and John, and get this. From our understanding of Scripture, they take the guy that was healed, too, and put him in jail. They take all three of them and put him in jail. It was too late in the afternoon, so they couldn't pull together the council to, like, take him to court. So they said, we'll do it in the morning, but you guys are going to jail tonight. So they put him in jail, and we don't know too much about what happens that night in jail, but they're in jail, and they're waiting until they can talk with him the next day. Now, I'm gonna sh- can you get the clip lined up? This clip is going to happen tonight, and it shows you the picture of the scene. Now, it's, it's accurate, but there's a few things off. For example, um, they have the man coming in from the outside when he was actually down there the whole time. And the other thing that's different is they created this, like, situation where um, the high priest's wife is involved. She wasn't involved in any of this that we know. So they're just creating different storylines. But the point is, I want you to see something here. I want you to notice that when you see Caiaphas, he's dressed in this robe, you might go, well, that's not very fancy. It's just a towel. It's a very fancy outfit. Like, he is religious royalty. He's like kind of a, he's a celebrity. He's a big deal. And he has this thing with all these jewels right here. And he's up on these stairs and he's high in these jewels. It's called an ephod. You don't get those unless you're the high priest. It's kind of a big deal. He's, in terms of that society, he's the opposite of a failure. He's a success. He's risen to the high priest. He is what people aspire to be. And he thinks that way. And you can see his shoulders the way he walks. And you've got to remember this. Peter and John, they're just fishermen. Everybody around them, they don't know these guys. They're just like the poor. Not only are the poor, they've got just like menial jobs. They're just fishermen in this culture, which is not a huge glory job. And I want you to see the, just that part of it as they start to take them to court and really give it to them. So if you could show that clip, that'd be great. Tell us, in whose name do you claim the cripple was healed? Let it be known to all of you. And to all the people of Israel, that he was healed by the name of Jesus 
Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Do you say the Nazarene himself healed him? Not God. I say he was healed by God in the name of Jesus Christ, whom God resurrected from death. You liars! There was no healing, only deception. We know that this, this miracle was nothing more than theater with actors playing roles to falsely glorify their dead Nazarene. Caiaphas asked this question in verse 7. Acts chapter 4, verse 7. He says, who gave you the authority to create that spectacle in the temple yesterday? Who gave you the authority? Which is another way to say, who do you think you are? Like, you can't do those things. You can't just come in here and, and you're normal. You're just fishermen. You're just peasants. Because... To do that, to walk in and to say the things that they said, to even be teaching, there has to be some kind of authority that was given to you, right? Like, you can't just walk outside right now and start writing tickets and putting it on people's cars, can you? You ever try to do that? No. You don't have the authority to do it. I'm sure some of you, because we've all done it as teenagers, have tried to move somebody's car before. Nobody gave you the authority, but you're like, let's see how far we can go with this. I was at a baseball field the other day. All the seats were bad, and there was a special, like, boardroom for the little league that's upstairs and I usually know most of the codes and I was like let's go up there and somebody asked me who gave you the authority I go no one we couldn't get in because they changed the code but the point was you know there's certain things you have to have authority to do right it's just kind of understood he's asking you who gave you the authority to do this in this world, there's so many doors that you feel are closed to you because you haven't been given the authority to do it. And sometimes it's not because of something legal like giving a ticket. It's, I, I, I can't do that. Because you've defined yourself incorrectly. You have a sinful view of who you are. This man Caiaphas is looking at them and he has a sinful view of who these men are. Who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority? Then Peter I love he says this in verse uh, 8. He goes, rulers and elders of the people, yesterday a good deed was done. Someone who was sick was healed. If you're asking us how this happened, I want all of you, all the people of Israel to know this man standing in front of you was obviously in good health. They all knew it. That's the difference from this. Like Caiaphas in the television shows like, wait, he wasn't healed? Everybody knows who this guy is. The scriptures are clear about that. You know, the guy. That's pretty much what scripture says. You know, the guy that was always there so Caiaphas knows who this is, which makes it even more amazing that they're persecuting Peter and John and the healed guy. So you know they've got issues. And usually it's wrapped up in this idea of entitlement. But that's another sermon. We want to focus on the opposite of entitlement, which is that sense of a lack of authority, a lack of strength, a lack of confidence, and even more importantly, an unright relationship with the Lord so that you don't know who you really are. But Peter knows who he is. He says here in verse 10, he was healed by the authority 
of Jesus of Nazareth, the anointed one. He doesn't say, hey, God told me I can do this. I'm doing He says, no. The, he, he takes the sign and just keeps pointing it back to Christ. And this is the part I want us to hang on. This is the one verse that I want you to make sure you look at for yourself. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. If you're not open there already, please go there. This is from the voice translation. And this is what it says in Acts 4.13. Now the leaders, the leaders being Caiaphas, the other priests that were up there, the people in charge, the people of authority in that culture, the leaders were surprised and they were confused. Now I don't know if they're going to pick that tonight in this show, but they were because they couldn't figure it out. They kept hearing Peter talk and the more he talked and the more John talked, they're like, wait, I thought these guys were fishermen. Why are they talking with such authority? Why are they so confident? And they know the scripture. Where are they getting this from? How do they know all this? Jesus told them, hey, when they take you before the authorities, I am going to give you the words to say. And sure enough, the spirit of God is speaking through them. And they're speaking with his confidence. It's not from them. They looked at Peter and John and they realized they were typical peasants. Uneducated. Utterly ordinary fellows with extraordinary confidence. I remember uh, two weeks ago, Shane came up to close the service. And as he was up here talking, I, I was in the back and I'm like, whoa. I was amazed. Now, I've known Shane for a long time and, I, and, and he's an elder at our church. But yet when he was speaking, there was such confidence. He was speaking. He knew he had the authority of God to speak. And there was no ums and ahs or apologies. He just was there and he was sharing this good news. And when he came down later, I said, Shane, that was amazing. Like, it was as if you knew who you were right then. Shane's a fireman. Right? You could easily say, well, he's a fireman, you know. He, he, he didn't go to Bible school. He didn't do... You don't need all that. You need the Spirit of God. You can go to Bible school. You can go to seminary. You can do all that and not have the Spirit of God and you have nothing then. You have nothing to offer. What we need is the Spirit of God. And when he stood there, I, I saw an ordinary, I just want to say the word fellow because it just sounds so cool. He was an utterly ordinary fellow. But yet with extraordinary confidence. And the leaders, the Caiaphas and the other leaders that were looking at these disciples, it says the leaders recognized them as companions of Jesus, or some of your translations say that you're looking at, they realize, wait, they had spent time with Jesus. When we spend time with Jesus, then you get to see yourself for who you really are. You get to feel comfortable in your own skin. As I look at our chairs right now, I look at us sitting down, like, I, I'm a student of people, and I know us as human beings, and in general, no matter what service it is, no matter which church I'm teaching at, no matter where I'm at in the world, People are not comfortable in their own skin. And we do different things. We love to sit in these chairs. When I have the circle tables and we bring them all the way in front, we get so many complaints from people. Why do we do that? Why? Because if you're at a table and it's round and everybody's at the table, you've got to look at someone else. And it's not the you looking at them that bothers you. It's the them looking at you. Because we don't feel comfortable in our own skin because we feel like failures or losers. My hair's not right. I don't say the right things or they're better than I am or, or we respond with a defense mechanism we start judging them like I don't want to sit with these dirty people or whatever it is because we don't feel comfortable in our own skin 
Because we have an unright relationship with Christ and we don't know who we are and we don't walk in confidence. And we have all these mannerisms and things that we do to try to protect ourselves. I think that's why the garage door opener was created. So we could just go right in and close it so we just don't have to deal with anybody else. These leaders recognize them as companions of Jesus. And it's because of that that they have authority. Do you know that you have been given the opportunity to change the world? And I'm not saying that some superficial kind of, you know, make a difference. You know, you can, you can help that one person. I'm talking change the world. I'm literally saying change the face of the world. We've been given that authority. Peter is starting to believe it. He's starting to understand and he's, re- he's realizing that Christ has redefined him. We always talk about being born again. You must be born again. That means to be born again. It doesn't mean going back and into your mom. It means that you realize who you really are, who you were created to be. And Peter is starting to understand it. And so is John. And so are the rest of them. They were fans of Jesus and they followed him, but they didn't know what the good news really was to restore them. For them to understand, wait, this is who, like, I can do these things? Like, I'm not, like, I'm free? Like, I'm not what everybody else tells me, but I'm who you tell me I am? That's being born again. And yet, there's so many things that you are called to do. They were called to a job. Go back to Jerusalem. We've talked about this two weeks ago. You have a job to do. When we were put on this earth, we were put here for a purpose. And we only find that full fulfillment and purpose in Christ. He's our creator. And yet, we don't see enough of it happen. And I wish this person could be here this morning to share this story with you, but I want to share the story with you um, of a woman when she was 16 years old who was given the authority, given the ability to make a spectacle, to, 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 like Peter in this situation, the ability to step into a situation and save other people, literally save their lives. Um, it's my wife. And um, she is in La Jolla right now. She just finished running the half marathon. I know it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. She's asked me several times, hey, you want to do this race? I'm like, no. Why would I want to go run that long? She loves it. So she's down there doing it. And I asked her permission to share this story. And um, when, well, let me give you some background on her, uh, brief background. Some of you know it, so I'll keep it short. But for those that don't know, she uh, is the oldest of seven kids. There's three different dads, and all the kids are scattered with those three different dads. They've all, uh, every, there were drugs in each, with each of the dads. Two of them were super abusive. Um, and so, you know, when you grow up in that situation, you start to see things and hear things, and you look at yourself differently. And so she's had her own battles, like any teenage girl um, of who she was, and, and she responded in different ways because she didn't have a right relationship with the Lord, and she didn't live that out. Now, she was a Christian. At the age of seven, she was invited to uh, spend the night at a friend's house, first time she was able to spend the night, and then the next morning, that family went to church. And so they went to San Clemente Press. And you hear us talk about this all the time, the, the importance of children's ministry. You hear us up here saying, hey, we need people to help in children's ministry. We don't need daycare. We need people that through the authority of Christ will come and love on these kids to let them know who they really are. And so Stephanie was in this, um, 
in this youth group. And she walked in as a seven-year-old. And she said, this is where I belong. Like, this is my home. She knew it. She walked in, and so she, that's where she grew up. She grew up in the children's ministry. She went to the junior high group. She went to the high school group. She came back and served in the high school group. And through that experience of her being in those children's, that children's ministry, they shared the gospel with her. The gospel. What's the gospel? Gospel means good news. What's the good news? You are a daughter of the Most High. This is who you really are. He loved you. He lived. He died. He came back for you. He rose from the dead. You are set free. This is who you really are. These things that the world tells you are, that's not who you are. This is who you are. And so we fast forward from seven to the age of 16, and she comes home, and this is during, with the second, uh, step, the, the first stepdad is there, so she's the oldest, and it's an abusive household. And if you've lived in an abusive household, when you walk into the house and the abuse is happening, you can feel it in the air. You just know the dynamics. And so she comes home uh, from one of her three jobs, and she walks in, and she knows something's not right. And so she immediately takes the kids, because she's the oldest, so she takes all the other siblings, and she puts them in the room and, and says, lock the door. And then she goes around looking for her mom. And she comes around the corner, and she can hear the choking happening on the other side of the door. And so she opens the door, and there, sure enough, is her mom being choked. So Stephanie runs to the phone. So she sprints over to the phone, um, picks it up, and she's going to dial but the man who has lost his mind, uh, he's on drugs, he's, he's struggling with all of these things, and he's, he's abused her mom for a while, but this has reached another level. Never tried to hurt her, but at this point, that's all changed. He turns, and she can see in his eyes, and he's just running. This is a man. She's a 16-year-old little girl. In fact, I mean, she's way too skinny, which is another issue that she may share with you some other day. But she's sitting there staring at him as he's running at her to kill her. Like, not like, oh, hey, don't stop. No, it's a... no. I mean, he's enraged, and he's coming to attack her. What is she going to do? She's just some poor, ordinary 16-year-old girl. So he's running at her full speed, and she knows who she is. She didn't think. She didn't have to process through this. She just reacts from the depth of knowing who her God is and who she is. And she says, in the name of Jesus Christ, you cannot touch me. I'm a child of God. And as he's running, she said he just went, and just fell down to his knees and just kind of stuck there. She didn't sit there and soak up the moment. She got up and ran out, ran down the street to a neighbor, and then called the police. Called the police to come and save her mom and to save her siblings that were in the back room. Who gave her the authority to do that? Who does she think she is trying to take on some man? She didn't have to think. She knows who she is. And at that moment, she needed the authority of Christ. We talk about these things. Oh, that happened back then. That does, this happens. I've seen people get healed at this church. I've seen people get healed around the world. I've seen, I've seen us rebuke demons and see them being cast out. I've seen people wrestle with that inside of them. This is real business. But again, I want us to bring us back to this is a sign. What happened to Stephanie is a sign to point to something else. She is not a normal girl. And yet, when you ask her about this, she's not like, of course I did it. I'm Steph. Bam! Don't mess with me. No. She knows exactly where that power came from. Same thing Peter said. Why are you guys all looking at me? Why are you looking at me and John? You think we did this? God did it. 
God was the one that protected her mom. From that moment on, her mom realized, whoa, I need to get out of this house. Maybe this is a bad idea. And it reset the course of her entire family. Now, I love my wife. But you know what? She's no more special than you or me. But God is almighty. And he has called you and given you a job to live as a child of God. If you didn't go on up to children's ministry, if you didn't go through youth group, or if you went through all that and you still don't believe it, you are living in sin. Now, I know that's when people usually say, hey, you're not supposed to do that activity. You're not supposed to do that behavior. Hey, you better not steal that. You better not touch that person. You better... No. We're talking about a heavy sin. There's no greater sin than having an incorrect view of who you are because you are a child of God. I didn't plan on saying this, but my son was walking up and down this aisle and we were, I was making reference to him. If he ever believes that about him, about himself, like I'm a failure, I'm a loser, he is living in sin. The word sin means wrong. So he's living wrong because he's living in a wrong perception of himself. And so many of us are trapped in that. In fact, we're so trapped in that that we're not able to be who God created us to be. In fact, many of you are dealing with diseases and sicknesses based on that lie. Because you're so stuck in the guilt and the shame and the scorn of yourself. You hate yourself. Or you've taken that hate of yourself and you've transferred it onto someone else. And you've taken that rage and that unforgiveness and you've placed it on someone else. And yet you deal with all of that. That is it's, I can't remember who said it, but they said unforgiveness is like trying to kill a rat by eating the rat poison. Like you need to get rid of that. You need to forgive others and you need to forgive yourself and realize that Christ forgave you. Peter was struggling with that. He could not forgive himself. He was in sin. Sin meaning he had a wrong relationship with God because he thought that he was cast out because he failed. He defined himself as a failure. I lost. I'm a loser. It's not true. You need to be set free from this untruth. John 8.32 says this. You shall know the truth and you shall be set free. That's the good news. That's the good news of what God has done. Peter, when he has this moment, has this moment of being set free from Christ, then Christ says this. Go into all the world and make disciples teaching them everything I've taught you. What greater lesson do you think Peter's going to teach to any of them? Do you think he's going to say, now let's open up to Genesis right here. Hey, you know what? Let's look at the prophets here. That's all important stuff. You know what he's going to say? He's going to talk about God. He's going to talk about Jesus Christ and his unbelievable grace and mercy in him to set him free from his own guilt and shame. There is nothing better than that. My wife did an amazing thing. She saved her family, but she's done tons more by sharing with other women and other men and sharing with them that they can be set free in Jesus Christ. This is who you really are. You are a child of God. There's no greater thing we could do to anyone than that. And that's our job. That's what we're set free to do. Sometimes we do it by, by eradicating poverty. Jake was here earlier. That's what he does with his life. Some of us are firemen, and we come in, and we, we protect people. We're looking out for them. Who gave you the authority to do that? Yeah, you went through the classes and all that, but you know what? Why are you doing that? Because you believe God has called you. Some of you are counselors. Some of you have businesses. You've been given these businesses not to just make money. You've been given it to set people free, to care for people, to honor God. We've been given these gifts. But remember who you are. Don't lose sight of who you are. 
You are not defined by your job. You're not defined by your marriages. You're not defined by your parenting or who your parents are. You are defined as a child of God. That's who you are. And don't believe the lies. I'm in the midst of this right now in my own life. I'm, re- I'm like, I, didn't, I think I believe this, but I'm dealing with the things that I'm sharing with you. And I want to share with you Psalm 139. I think it's the first slide. And this is a great psalm. I mean, you should be going through the whole one. It's amazing. For you created my inmost being. This is a, a man talking to God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Do you know that full well? Do you, like the psalmist, know that you are fearfully and wonderfully made? Do you know that all of God's works are wonderful? This isn't a self-help morning. I'm, I'm being honest here. It's just the truth. Do you know that you are wonderfully made? Or you believe in the lies? Because if you believe those lies, you're believing what is wrong. So I want to close with this. I want to invite the worship team up. And if you guys could stand with me, I want to read from Acts 4 because what happens is um, that Peter and John, I know it's kind of a spoiler alert, but (laughs) deal with it. They're released. The leaders don't know what to do because they know this man's healed. They know everybody believes in him. They don't know what they're supposed to do differently. So they come back and they're just celebrating and, and they're, uh, they're with the, other, the rest of the church, a small church like this, and they're, they're talking about what God has done. And then Peter prays for the people. He prays for this little church. After what's just happened, he prays for them. And I want that to be my prayer for us. So would you pray with me? This is uh, the prayer from verse 29. And now, Lord... Take note of their intimidations intended to silence us. Grant us, your servants, the courageous confidence we need to go ahead and proclaim your message. While you reach out your hand to heal people, enabling us to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And all the people said, Amen.